Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Okay, no, it, it's only fair, Peter. I apologize, but could, <laughs> could you talk about the sea cucumbers one more time for the folks at home? Okay, fine. For the sea cucumber aficionados who are not here the first time around, sea cucumbers are really cool echinoderms. They breathe through their assholes, through things called cloacal trees. They vomit their intestines up in your face if you poke them with a stick because they never really figured out how to run away from predators, so they just kind of sacrifice a bit of themselves unto predators, hoping that you will eat their giblets and leave the rest of them alone. What they haven't figured out is that then, without any giblets or intestines, they really have no way of, like, eating anymore. So they basically just starve to death even after they've avoided predation. Um, It's really kind of remarkable that uh, sea cucumbers have not gone extinct Millions of years ago, my working hypothesis is that they're being continually restocked by aliens. And with that, folks, we welcome Peter Rot- Peter Watts, a science fiction writer. <laughs> uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Yeah, I uh, almost feel like we should call it right there. That was marvelous. But... Uh... <laughs> But uh, well, you know, there is a, there is something on YouTube where they're like basically playing the theme from the Mandalorian for twenty four solid hours. You could just loop my cucumber uh, my cucumber shtick for the forty five minutes or an hour that you want, and you would still be well within that realm. That is an I, excellent plan, actually. <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not ruling that out, honestly. Uh, but okay for for the folks at home who are staring quizzically at their phones. Uh, <laughs> We are joined by Peter Watts. Um, As the fanboy of the podcast, I have been a fan of his work for about 20 years now. Um, uh, There's a series he was known for in the early aughts, uh, the the Rifters trilogy. Uh, It's worth reading. Uh, Sadly, we're not talking about that today. We're talking about Blindsight, uh, a book which came out in 2006 that talks about... uh, Oh my God! Uh, it's it's a future shock book. There are vampires. Uh, the uh, an alien race takes a uh, you can't call it a selfie, but let let's say a, a deep scan of the human race, and uh, a a a group of specialists is sent to investigate, and it gets weirder than that. Uh, the the main character has half a brain and is uh, trying to get in touch with his humanity, and I feel like I am babbling, which is probably a good place to be if I'm trying to describe this book. If you have not read it and you're listening to this, I, I judge you. Go read it and come back. <laughs> um, Peter, I want to ask you a specific question here. There's so many angles of approach we could take with this novel, and I like to think we'll cover a few of them. It was fascinating. It was unlike anything that I'd read before. And my first question for you is, because this is Vampire Month and we're covering 
the vamps on this podcast. When did you first get into vampires and how did that interest grow and develop? I am not into vampires at all. Um, <laughs> like seriously, the only reason, the only reason this happened the way it is, is because apparently I still don't know why I'm hypothesizing here, but I think I may have pissed somebody off at a science fiction con in Edmonton and they stuck me on a panel about vampires. This was like, this was way back around the turn of the century, right? This is during the middle of, of uh, the Buffy the Vampire Slayer run. Hmm. And I hadn't watched Buffy up to that point. And I didn't know anything about vampires. I couldn't care less. I thought vampires were, you know, biologically kind of dumb. Um, and I don't know to this day who I pissed off to end up stuck between these two people rhapsodizing about something called angel and something else called spike and <laughs> and something else called like fellatio behind some kind of a satanic fast food store where the actual secret ingredient was meat um <laughs> i didn't understand any of this but what i was at that point anyway still was a was a biologist so i started just to pull my weight in this, this unfortunate situation I found myself, I, I started trying to sort of spitball possible biological mechanisms um, by which vampires might exist plausibly. Um, and one of the things that first occurred to me is that there are certain uh, receptor cells uh, in the in the the human visual system, the mammalian visual system, that respond to certain visual primitives. There are certain arrays of of cells that fire uh, in the presence of horizontal lines or of you know a, an oblique line or particular differences of of um, of light intensity. There are things called Mexican hat arrays which which respond to contrast. So I thought, hey, Supposing vampires suffered from a mutation that ended up with the photoreceptors that fire in response to vertical lines cross-wiring with those that fire in response to horizontal lines in such a way that when they are confronted with intersecting horizontal and vertical lines that occupy more than 30 or 40 degrees of their visual arc, um, they get a feedback loop and essentially have a grand mal seizure. They basically spaz out epileptically. Um, that, would, that would explain an aversion to crosses. But beyond that, because vampires as sort of an apex predator would have a very small population and because Intersecting right angles are extremely rare in nature before we developed Euclidean geometry. It's the kind of a mutation that would be um, selectively neutral in, in nature. So it could become fixed through this tiny vampire population through, through genetic drift. And uh, then when we showed up, we developed Euclidean architecture. And all of a sudden there's like right angles next to the vampire's prey. 
So this would also explain why vampires can't enter a house uninvited, because they have to enter the house with their eyes closed. It would explain all sorts of things. It would explain why there aren't vampires anymore. It would explain that that uh, they essentially went extinct when uh, when they were denied access to their prey. But then the question becomes, okay, well, why didn't they just switch to warthogs or something? Okay, well, that means there's got to be something specific about human beings that vampires can only get from humans, some kind of brain protein, perhaps. So I went on like this. Um, and I was actually really getting kind of enthusiastic. It, I was thinking it was like one of the best panels I'd ever been on. And, and I stop. And then there's these crickets. <laughs> and then... And then this person to the left of me says, so, well, so like, you know, uh, Angel, I think Angel's better for Buffy than Spike. <laughs> and that was, that was kind of the sum total of my, of my, um, of my experience with vampire biology. But the, the idea kind of stuck with me afterwards, even though nobody would talk to me for the rest of the con. And, uh. I thought maybe, you know, maybe I can make a, you know, one of those coffee table books, a fake natural history book on the first biennial convention on the evolution and biology of vampires or something. But everybody hated it. My, my agent refused to, uh, to even pitch it. My editor didn't like it. So I had this idea for sort of biologically semi-plausible vampires um, and nowhere to stick it. And a few years later, I was working on Blindsight and, and, you know, one of the things that any novice coming to Blindsight uh, will realize is that I'm absolutely shitty at drawing characters. Um, and basically my characters, the, the, the cast of Blindsight, the crew of, of Theseus, is essentially exists. They're all freaks and retrofits in a, in a way that, that each uniquely illustrates a certain aspect of consciousness. Um, and as I was closing in on, on building the story, I realized there was this kind of a, a vampire-shaped hole in the cast. So I slotted this petty act of revenge for an imagined slight from the turn of the century. I just sort of slid it into this hard science fiction novel. And so here I got this science fiction novel with a vampire in it. And I kind of turned it around in my mouth a little bit and looked at it. And I thought, why the fuck not? Let's just see if it flies. Um, you know, and I, I have- did. <laughs> I had this absolutely wrong because I developed a theory in my head of exactly how you came up with this. And it was just, it was complete cloud castle bullshit, which is, I thought you went out and started looking at the various myths about vampires because vampires are sort of like dragons in that a lot of cultures just sort of came up with similar shit. Yeah, and yeah. The similarities are kind of cool. Like if if you uh, like the Chinese equivalent of a vampire, if you throw a bunch of coins at it, it has to pick them all up and stack them and count them. And the Eastern European vampire does the same thing with rice. And I was like, well, maybe Peter looked at that and said, okay, well that means they're OCD. What other brain characteristics would make a compelling vampire that explains this behavior? And I don't know. I just I love the idea of you being at that Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh, you know the worst thing about it, the most embarrassing thing about it for me is I know exactly what episode they're talking about with that stupid meat at the diner. <laughs> well, you know, in all honesty, I became quite fond of Buffy afterwards. I kind of picked it up halfway through and then I went back and looked at it. We've still got the DVD box sets. 
um, you know, for its for its time, and if you could sit through the first couple of dire seasons, um, yes, it turned into something that was that was quite. I mean, I thought the musical episode was wonderful. I thought the the dialogue free episode with the gentleman was absolutely classic. They did a lot of good stuff. Did um, did you watch our okay? Did you listen to our Buffy episode that were a few weeks ago? Because we mentioned three episodes, and you just named two of them. Really? Well, yeah, that's, that's not. A, A, I had, I did not listen to, to that installment. No, I, I, I feel now ashamed. Thank you for, <laughs> for shaming me in public. Um, but B, it's not that surprising because those were kind of the universally acclaimed episodes, right? Like I believe the musical episode, Once More With Feeling, that ended up on Time Magazine's list of the 10 best um, TV episodes of the year, the decade or something that year. So yes. it's, you don't have to be a huge Buffy fan to know those touchstones. Well, and the other one we did was The Body, and that's also a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one as well. Although they, they kind of broke a little bit by actually throwing the supernatural element in at the end of the morgue. Um, yeah. I, I, I can mean, see I, why they had to do that, but it would have been nice to have a completely mundane, 100% supernatural-free episode. I think that would have... But it was still it was still a grand episode. Yeah, yeah, and I see why they made the choices you did. I, 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 I agree with you. One of the things Connor said when we were talking about it, not to put words in your mouth, Connor, was that the stakes of that episode was making making the little sister not see the body, and that was you know, and the it, it, the idea was it just sort of turned around the typical Buffy episode, and I I thought that was an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, there were they did. I mean. Whedon did a lot of really good stuff back then. Um, it's uh, I, I, I don't mean I don't mean to shit on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I was simply <laughs> saying that I had no fucking clue what they were talking about back in like 1999 or 2001 or whenever it was that they stuck me on this panel. But but I, I have since repented. So Peter, uh, I guess I'm going to get meta here and make fun of myself a little bit. Have you since this book came out in 2006, Blind Sight? Have you just had sort of Dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of fanboys approach you and like, tr- you know, try to turn you into their vampire expert and ask you all about vampires. And you're like, let's talk about sea cucumbers. <laughs> <laughs> in the first place, don't lay, don't lay this sea cucumber stick on me. That was in your email. You said, you said you wanted to talk about sea cucumbers. I accommodated. So any podcast picnic listeners out there. I don't know if they pull this kind of shit on you regularly. <laughs> I am not going to be your sea cucumber monkey boy here. Um, people do I, I not- merely, I merely <laughs> meant you could talk about whatever you please. I, that was on me. I apologize. <laughs> but in terms of like, in terms of the question, I, I don't have, as far as I know, the exact opposite happens to me. It's not that people run up to me and say, oh, tell me about this, that, or the other aspect of biology. I get I get real cognitive scientists coming up to me after my readings and saying, this is my name on the back of this napkin. Here's my contact information. If you ever do this again, let me know and I'll help you do it right. Uh, um, <laughs> woof. Actually, I, I, I'm, I'm actually being a bit too cruel to myself. That did not happen. But but scientists have come up to me. This is actually one of the coolest things about being a science fiction writer. I have this huge honking list now of people who are way smarter than me um, about a much greater 
variety of, I've got, a, I've got, uh, I had this brief disastrous, um, relationship with the person of interest people, the TV show, they wanted me to do a tie in novel. And then they like fired me three days later because they didn't like my attitude. Um, but it turns out that the ex special forces guy that they used as their military advisor reached out to me and we're now sort of pixel pals. And he advises me when I write my military SF, there's, um, a guy who's got his name on half the laser patents in the patent office. He advises me on laser technology for my area forest series. There are, um, there are a bunch of cognitive neuroscientists like blindsight oddly enough, ended up in some neuroscience labs. I've had postdocs come to me and, you know, who are the, you know, deciding that they're going to write science fiction stories too, and wanting me to get them in touch with my agent. Um, so, I do have lots of people come up to me, but they do not look at me as the expert. They generally are far more expert than I am, but they've liked my stuff. So I always ask if it's okay if I, you know, take down their contact info so that I can hit them up for information the next time I write, um, the next time I write something that falls into their, um, into their bailiwick. So I've got experts on computer networking. I've got military guys. I've got mathematicians. I've got molecular geneticists. Um, I've got sea cucumber biologists. I've got, <laughs> I've got all sorts of offered expertise. And it is so amazingly cool to be able to, to draw from that kind of a, uh, that kind of a pool as, as, um, my Sunday school teacher once said, uh, uh, when I was very, very young, um, I've got friends I haven't even used yet. <laughs> <laughs> that that answers part of one of the real questions I've had about you, or at least answers it in part, which is that um, you really seem to be, uh, like looking at your books, you seem to be a generalist. Like the range of your knowledge and your interest is a lot broader than your average science fiction writer. Like I'm not slamming anybody, but like Le Guin is like an anthropologist or an economist. Like she's in in a somewhat narrow area of interest in science fiction. And like Benford is an astronomer, but you're all over the place. And is that just because you have access to all of these people or are you interested in a lot of things or how does this happen? Would you say? Well, I'm not, um, I mean, my, my field of friendly experts kind of accumulated slowly over time, right? When I started off um, with the Rifters trilogy, I, I didn't know anyone. Um, and interestingly enough, I think what you might be interpreting as expertise might actually be the exact opposite. It might be ignorance. Um, I know we're not talking about the Rifters trilogy, but there's a really interesting piece of follow-up to the Rifters trilogy that, that I think is relevant here. Um, I got a lot of, of um, nice reviews about Starfish. A lot of people saying, oh boy, you can really tell that you can really tell that this guy is is a marine biologist. Oh, he really knows his marine biology. Oh, you can tell the guy's a scuba diver, blah, blah, blah. That's it. What nobody ever did with that book was say, and reading Starfish, I was inspired in my own marine biological research. And then I had to write Maelstrom. And 
people were actually inspired to do postgraduate research based on the concepts I presented in Maelstrom, which had nothing to do with marine biology at all, completely outside my wheelhouse. Uh, in fact, there's one guy uh, from Lawrence Livermore Labs who says that, that I inspired his research, but he couldn't tell me why, because it's, you know, it's Lawrence Livermore Labs, it's DARPA, and I did not have <laughs> sufficient security clearance. Um, so I'm, I'm waiting for some really cool, you know, engineered bioweapon with my trademark on it to sort of wipe out thousands of people. But, but until that happens, what happened in Maelstrom was, I mean, I don't know anything about computer science. Um, you know, I, I used to, to code in like really archaic languages like APL and Fortran and, you know, basic and that sort of thing. But no, uh, uh, no kind of coder at all, really, except at the, the very high level languages. Uh, but what I did do was I took to heart um, Richard Dawkins' definition of life. It's the best definition of life I've ever heard, which is simply life is information shaped by natural selection. And that definition doesn't require the life to be squishy. Um, the medium in which the information is shaped is basically a fashion accessory. It's optional. Uh, you could literally have computer viruses by this definition that would literally be alive if they were shaped by natural selection. The reason that we don't have live computer viruses these days, I maintain, is because malware is generally designed to scam your credit card number or to get into a back door in your computer and, and brick your hard drive for ransomware purposes. Um, there are hard-coded imperatives that the people who write these things don't want to change. If you threw some random number generators into a piece of software, they're basically the equivalent of genes. And people have done this. People have been doing this since the 80s, just for, for you know, purposes of academic research. Um, and you let natural, you set this thing loose in the wild and let natural selection take its course. You don't care if it reports back to you with anybody's credit card information. What you're basically going to have is an electronic life form that evolves, interacts with its habitat, and develops and reproduces thousands and thousands and thousands of times faster than we meat sacks ever could. And that was that was one of the that was one of the central conceits of Maelstrom was what happens if Darwinian processes go wild in digital ecosystems. And that's how the internet turned into the titular Maelstrom. Um, and that was what a number of people found inspiring in terms of real world research. I don't know anything about computer science, but computer scientists found this interesting. And all I did was take a biological concept in an area where I knew something about and poured it over into another area where I didn't know jack shit. And I think maybe it's that cross boundary thing that perhaps conveys the sense that I'm more expert than I really am. I really only have one trick, but I, but I plop it down in a bunch of different fields and just see what happens. Did so, I even answer trick, your question? <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I just want to like, there, there's so much there to unpack. I guess like you're saying that the trick is that you are good at sort of synthesizing what you've learned as a PhD level biologist and transferring those lessons to other fields and other questions. Is that what, is that what you're saying? 
I think that's what happened in that case. There have been other cases where I have just gone out and done the grunt work and studied and learned and tried to, you know, get things right. I've been doing that more lately just because, you know, you tend to run out of ideas when you get old. So, so it becomes more work and less inspiration. Um, but, but the stuff that's, I mean, I've actually given a talk. I haven't given it for years now, but one of the, one of the talks I used to give was, is science fiction um, too important to be left to the scientists? Because you can make a really strong case that scientists, by their, the, the very nature of their formal training, are going to be terrible storytellers. And yeah, you can point to the Benfords and the, the Russells and so on of the world, but, but that's arguing by anecdote. That's cherry picking. Most scientists are taught to write badly. Because if you write clearly and concisely, and they've done studies on this, they've done pretty rigorous studies on this. If you write clearly and concisely, people will understand what you're saying. The reviewers will understand what you're saying and they will say, well, yeah, of course. So anyone can see <laughs> that. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas if you write using opaque language that nobody can really understand, the reaction is more likely to be, well, shit, this guy's way beyond me. I don't know what he's talking about. I guess we should like approve this for publication with minor edits. There was in fact one recorded case of a guy who went through six drafts of a paper because he wanted it to be clear. And the sixth draft was rejected. And just for a lark, he sent off his first draft to exactly the same journal, but under a different name. It was accepted with minor edits. So we are taught not to speculate. We are taught not to say anything that can't be backed up eight different ways. Um, we are taught to write badly and we are taught to develop a, a great deal of expertise in a, in a very, very narrow area. And I think that that kind of stuff accretes around you like the, like the, the shell of a tube worm or something. I think it constrains you. I think it straight jackets you. Um, and, and so I think that in, in most cases, science fiction written by scientists is narrow and lacks imagination compared to something written by somebody who with a, a broader but, but shallower knowledge base. I mean, the classic, classic case here is, is William Gibson, who uh, you know, didn't know anything about computers when he wrote Neuromancer, but managed to inspire you know, a generation. Um, you know, I still kind of giggle when you read Neuromancer and he's, you know, you've got case you know, trying to get rid of 30 megabytes of hot RAM in like 2050. <laughs> and, and there's this one point where he's, you know, he's, he's hacking his way into something and, and, and he's running into big problems with the black ice and he calls somebody to like go out and get him a modem because he needs a modem. <laughs> and like you actually, you actually go back and reread Neuromancer and it's full of incredible boners like that. But the, the um the basic sensibility the idea was inspired uh, another case in point um larry niven larry niven not a grand narrative stylist you know by anybody's i mean that the, the man could barely write his way out of a fortune cookie if you're looking for graceful prose but and his his basic premise that we human beings are actually the descendants of ancient 
uh, ancient astronauts or ancient aliens from the galactic core and that we're basically stunted in this weird breeder phase because we lack a certain heavy metal. Pure bullshit. I mean, anybody who knows anything about genetics would have known even back in the 60s. Nah, nah, we've got, there's way too much binding us to the rest of, of the life on this planet. There's no way that makes any sense at all. But what Niven had was a really good appreciation of what natural selection implies that natural selection does not necessarily always lead to greater intelligence, that, that evolution can make you dumber as well as smarter, that you can lose things, that even at high intelligence basically evolves in service of reproductive fitness. And so for all the, the dumb mistakes that he made in terms of biology, he internalized the, the essence of Darwinian fitness in a way that allowed him to draw, in my opinion anyway, really interesting aliens. And the man had no biological background at all. Um, so I think that, you know, I may be, if I'm an exception, if other scientists are the exception, it may be because we do right out of, out of our field of expertise. People liked starfish, but people were inspired by Maelstrom. Uh, of course, everybody hated Behemoth, but that's a, that's a whole different issue. Um, maybe, I will maybe say maybe that's I'll it. I'll remember that John the fucking Baptist line for the rest of my life as a side note. <laughs> I, I'm glad you like that. Oh, I have awesome. I had a strong religious upbringing, so I always try to put something of the reverential and the sacred into my writing. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I'm just I'm sort of sitting here in, in shock because I've actually I've been trying to write something up about Niven and, and thinking a lot about like the the well. Devolution is the wrong word, but sort of the regression of the grog species and what happened to the Kazinti and like all of that stuff. And like you just you just threw a framework over it. And so I'm like, I'm not even going to bother writing that anymore. That's exactly what I meant. <laughs> Somebody else said it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can criticize Niven for a lot of stuff, um, but I grew up on the guy. So I'm probably thinking of him more um, more uh, favorably than then. Also, he uh, he dated my wife when I was in France. Um, Wait, are you serious? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, they went to the Jules Vune Museum in Nantes. Um, okay, he's he's a he's from a different generation. Um, he he's he's a nice enough guy. We he didn't really integrate all that well, I guess. Um, but I could, I could sort of reach out to him because, um, um, I had, I had grown up on his stuff and, you know, we, we sat around at the, the breakfast table in the restaurant in the hotel and, and we ate and then I had to go to some panel and then I forgot my jacket. So I went back to get my jacket and there he was with my wife. She was not my wife at the time. She was, she was just my girlfriend. But there they were outside my door, making plans to go to the Jules Verne Museum in Nantes. And, uh, yeah. Fortunately, yeah. <laughs> he's about, fortunately, he's about, you know, 90 years old and flatulent. So I didn't feel all, I didn't feel all that insecure. But, but there was still that moment of, you know, bug. Like, 
I idolized this guy and you're the one going out with him. How did that happen? But my, my, you know, Caitlin is extremely charming that way. So, so it's not really surprising. Everybody likes going out with her. Wow. Yeah. That makes perfect sense to me. Um, I want to, I want to go back to something you're talking about science fiction written by scientists. And of course you are uh, a scientist by training. And I guess my big question, um, you know, how did you, you said you grew up reading particular science fiction from a certain era, but I mean, like, did you always know in the back of your mind that you're going to be a science fiction writer or did that happen later on? I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but you've made me very curious about it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I had two dreams as a child and I remember the moment that I got, that I had, that I was struck with both bugs. I wanted to be a marine biologist. And I wanted to be a science fiction writer. And I wanted to be a marine biologist because I grew up in Calgary in the prairies. And I was coming home from kindergarten with a friend. And he said he had an aquarium. And he wanted to know if I wanted to come in and I wanted to see his aquarium. And I was like five or six years old, right? I had one view of an aquarium. There is the there was a brewery downtown that had an aquarium. It was a public aquarium. And the upper um, floor was a museum of, you know, cowboys and Indians and all sorts of racist mannequins doing all sorts of racist mid-60s era prairie Canadian things. But down on the main floor, I mean, seriously, you the whole noble savage thing just went over the top. But anyway, down on the main floor, it was this entire floor and it was this grotto and there was this big tank with an octopus in it and everything was lit blue and green and there were sharks. And to me, that was an aquarium. So this guy, what was his name? Clifford? Clifford wanted me to see his aquarium. And so I went downstairs and said, wow, you've got one of these things? This is amazing. You've got an underground layer. You've got this. And it's like this 10-gallon tank with some guppies and swordtails in it. And weirdly enough, I was not crushed. I did not think, you, you liar. This isn't an aquarium. This is a stupid fish tank. I thought, wow, everyone can have an aquarium. And I became... <laughs> absolutely entranced with with fish at that point and from that point on like i was five or six years old wanted to be a marine biologist didn't know what a marine biologist was then but i still did and i jump ahead a couple of years i'm seven or eight now and i'm listening to cbc or national radio program or national radio broadcaster here in canada and they were playing the um the soundtrack from the walt disney 1958 movie um Void, uh, not Voids of Bottom Sea, uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea with Kirk Douglas and the big fake giant squid. And I'm listening to this, and this is really cool. I've never heard of Jules Verne before, but this is a really cool story. And so I, I sort of scribble down as much as I can remember in on, on Foolscap with Purple Crayon, and I give it to my dad. And I don't know if I actually told him that I'd written it myself or I just kind of let him assume that I'd written it myself. And he was kind enough not to call me out for plagiarism. And he said it was very good. He said that the crew of the Nautilus probably abandoned ship before they should have abandoned ship. But other than that, it was very good. And I was like, wow, 
I can do this. <laughs> and so from that point on, an act of, of crushing or should have been crushing disillusionment about what the definition of aquarium was and an act of successful plagiarism, um, from both those both those points, I decided I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a science fiction writer. I wanted to be a marine biologist. I went back and forth, back and forth throughout my entire upbringing. I ended up being both. I feel pretty lucky. That is, I mean, that is a great origin story. I mean, as someone, you know, I don't think it's about me, but like I'm in my late 20s and I'm toiling away on what, on various fiction projects right now, as listeners of this show know, that's central to my life. At what point did you like complete that transition and like sort of, did you, was there a point where you sort of knuckled under and focused on writing fiction or is it something that you just kind of did as you were doing other things and it, it panned out the way that it panned out? I mean, when did that transition take place, if it ever did? Um, uh, you've got another 20 years to go <laughs> if you're following in my footsteps. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, I've, I've been writing, like I say, since I was like seven or eight years old. I wrote all sorts of, you know, it was actually pretty good for an eight or nine or a 10 year old. Right. But it was pretty crappy science fiction. I mean, I, I wrote this one story about, about this lab where, where, you know, an egg from a human and a sperm from an octopus somehow got together and it created this weird tentacled fetus. And uh, it was, I mean, my English teachers liked it when I was like 12 or 13, um, looking back on it, you know, I don't know, maybe we could package it as a novelty gift item on a Patreon account or something if I had a Patreon <laughs> um, I was a good enough writer that Mr. Warren McBurney from the fucking Deacons um, Committee at Central Baptist Church, who also happened to be the head of the English department at White Oak Secondary School, uh, told my English teacher to reject the story I had submitted because there was doubt whether I had written it or not. It was too good for, for me to have written it. Oh, God. A fucker. And of course, he was like good friends with my parents and they were all good Baptists. And anyway, um, <laughs> so I've been writing, I was writing all along and I just got, you know, you know, I got the regular rejections. Um, I got some really nice rejections from, I mean, I actually, you know how people give you these stories about how they send, you know, stories off to like a hundred different publishers or magazines and they get rejected. I got them all beat. I was actually rejected by a magazine I'd never even sent anything to. <laughs> That's like, kind of impressive. Yeah. Um, analog. I, I sent this uh, story off to, um, to Asimov's cause it was a softer type of SF. I didn't think I was, I was, uh, I guess I was an undergrad by this time. I didn't think I was I was hard enough for the big boys. But I figured I might be able to sneak into Asimov. So I sent something to Asimov. And uh, like three weeks, four weeks later, I get a letter from Stanley Schmidt at Analog saying, uh, Hi, um, Skithers over at Asimov's passed this on to me. Uh, please don't send it to us in case you were thinking of sending it to us next. <laughs> um, oh my God. Skithers, Skithers, um, Skithers kind of liked the story and the idea, but, but, you know, he thought the ending was awfully depressing. 
Um, and I would say the same thing. I think you had considerable narrative drive here, but but really, dude, you you got to bring some clowns in at the end. You know, we we just can't. This stuff is just really grim. Um, but I'm interested in seeing more of your stuff. So it was like a rejection for something that I had not sent him, but it was also send me more of your stuff, right? So from now on, Stanley Schmidt, he's my man. And uh, I'm sending him everything. I'm sending him my fucking grocery lists. <laughs> and, and he keeps sending me these really nice rejections. You know, he tells me the difference between micro writing and macro writing. He thinks my micro writing is excellent, but the macro writing is... And, you know, this is, this is really good, but not only do the... Do the, the characters' actions not accomplish anything? It's really difficult to see why they'd ever consider them worth trying. Or can you bring in some clowns? That was one of his consistent pieces of advice. Maybe you could bring in some clowns. Uh, um, Peter, please do me a favor and never design a clown because it would be like <laughs> guild and evil. Like I, I, I am not down for Peter Watts clowns. Dude, I don't have to do anything for clowns. I saw – I was in um, was it Bulgaria. I was in Bulgaria a couple of months ago at a science conference. And one of the other presenters actually showed us some data showing that in your country, in the United States, I assume you guys in the U.S., right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. People are more afraid of clowns than they are of terrorism, climate change, economic malfeasance, um, or death. Death came in just a little <laughs> below clowns. It was something like... 47% of the American of the surveyed American population were afraid of clowns. And 50% of that population thought that the FBI should do more about the clown problem. <laughs> so I'm not going to waste my time on clowns. The clown job is done, far as I can see. But anyway, these letters, they kept they were nice, but they kept getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter, right? Sure. And finally, I got my very first rejection slip. I mean, what this is really saying is that the more I worked at writing, the worse I was getting. And <laughs> I finally wrote this story about these surgically modified people living in a hydrothermal rift vent. Um, and I, I sent it off. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever written. I called it a niche. It was terrific. It was like the character was based on, on a girlfriend that I'd had an unhappy breakup with. And, and so my heart was in it. And I, you know, I was a scuba diver. And so I had all this wonderful ambiance. It was really, really well written. It was, was going to be a really good deep sea science fiction story. And two weeks after I sent it off, James Cameron comes out with his movie called The Abyss. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a week and a half before James Cameron comes out with The Abyss, somebody else comes up with a movie called Deep Star Six, which is about a bunch of people surgically modified living at the bottom of the ocean where there are these, you know, giant monster fish. And then I think a week later, somebody called Roger Corman came out with a movie called Lords of the Deep. It had like a budget of $4.62, but it was about a bunch of people living at the bottom of the ocean near a hydrothermal vent with. And then there was another show called, a movie called Leviathan. It was kind of 
alien at the bottom of the sea where these people in this deep sea habitat were having to face these giant underwater creatures. It was like, fuck, my timing has never been worse. <laughs> so I get a rejection slip from Stanley Schmidt. My man, I've been like, Corey, sending guys stuff to this guy for, for years, like throughout like two postgraduate degrees, I've been sending stuff to him, right? As Dear Mr. Watts, we are very sorry, but we are currently overstocked on manuscripts of this sort at this time. And I can only assume that like this huge glut of sudden, you know, deep sea, deep sea movies came out and everybody and their dog started writing underwater science fiction. And so I guess that that Schmidt, I'm hoping anyway, that Schmidt kind of read the first paragraph of this and thought, oh, God, not another one and just tossed it. Um. But that went on to be my very first published short story. <laughs> um, it, was, it ended up getting published in this little dick-ass um, Canadian small press that none of you have ever heard of. And then it tied for an Aurora Award, which is a little dick-ass Canadian award you guys have never heard of. Um, and then it ended up being the, the basis for um, my first novel, Starfish, when I got sick of... of being a whore for the commercial fishing industry and left marine bi biology in a huff. Um, so it all worked out okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I was, I'm glad you ended with that because I thought you were maybe just going to leave us on the, the, you know, increasingly small rejection letters you were getting. I was like, it's <laughs> a Peter Watts story. <laughs> I, I will say, we, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, we do have a number of Canadian fans and I just want to make clear that that uh, I am not the Peter on this episode that said, you know, dick-ass Canadian publishing industry, all right? <laughs> I actually said dick-ass Canadian award. Okay, fair. To be clear, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're very pro-Canada on this show, just to be clear. But uh... <laughs> Well, I, I would, I'm not surprised. You're going, I, the way I see it, um, the way things are going down there, you'll probably decide to spread democracy north of the 49th any time now. Yeah, that's uh, we all look forward to that. That's going to be my my alternate future. Uh, you seem to be story. running out of uh, running out of fresh water in a big way down there, and and we've still got some up here, and we have uh, socialized medicine, which kind of makes us commies. So I can see you guys deciding to you know liberate us. I can see there being a peaceful merger with the two countries as well, equal partners. I. <laughs> I have heard that we would be greeted as rescuers. Um, well, liberators, liberators. Rescuers is the U.S. term. Yeah, fair. <laughs> <laughs> or, I think they, you know, if you wanted to go back to liberateurs, <laughs> would, you know, if you wanted to say it with the proper Canadian cadence. Hey, the, uh, you're, from, uh, you're from the prairies, right? You're from Alberta. The Albertan would, separatists would welcome us. <laughs> <laughs> the Albertan separatists already are you. <laughs> I'm in I'm in Montana, obviously bordering Alberta. Not that close to Alberta, actually, but uh, you know, let's just say that yeah, there there is some there are some cultural similarities. I've been told, but uh, well, yeah, I think that I think one of the things that that in that happened in my Rifters um, trilogy was I basically um, took a cheese grater to North America and split everything north south as opposed to east west because. You know, that just seems to be the way it is. California's got way more in common with Oregon and with BC than it does with the flyover states. Um, Montana's got way more in common with Alberta than it does with 
Toronto. Toronto's probably got more in common with New York, but that's just our insecurity speaking. There, Cory Doctorow asked me this 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 joke a while back. How much? Uh, uh, how many Torontonians does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is two: one to change the light bulb, and one to fly down to New York and make sure that light bulbs are still cool. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which kind of sums up our relationship to the U.S. <laughs> That's pretty great. Oh, man. Um, Pete, I, you had some high concept questions. You want to lob one of those in yeah, here? Yeah. Yeah. There's I, I guess I guess the one that I've been thinking the most about, which is uh, I in rereading Blindsight, uh, one of the things that really resonated with me is the relationship between Siri and his parents, that sort of emotional triangle. And I'm having some uh, some some personal issues with people people I love uh, having uh, capacity changes, and I am just sort of wondering is is that an inkblot thing where I am I'm overlaying that on your novel, or were you having a, a similar thought process when you were working with those? I know I know it's I know it's bullshit to ask an author what they were what they were thinking when they were writing something. But I, uh, yeah, is is there a relationship between I, what I was looking at, what's really going on? I guess is what I'm asking. When you say capacity change, you mean cognitive capacity? Yes. Okay. Yeah, sundowning. So we're not talking about like you know somebody's bladder getting smaller or anything. No, no, not okay. like that. Well, I'm not. I'm actually. Um, it's really interesting. You should ask that. It's not a dumb question at all. It's kind of a it's kind of a nail on the head question, actually, um, because I tend to write my stories about ideas. I tend to be really crappy at character development. So when I have to draw a character, mm-hmm. I tend to I tend to base them on actual people, and in a weird way. Siri's parents were much like my own. Some of the actual events that he remembers from childhood were autobiographical. Some of the um, fucked up issues he had with relationships were semi-autobiographical. My dad was... My dad was a wonderful guy. He was... Um, I think he was deeply deluded because he was a Christian. He was a Baptist minister. He founded something called the Baptist Leadership Training School in Calgary, and he was principal there for 22 years. Then he got promoted to be the general secretary of the Baptist Convention of Ontario and Quebec, so he moved out here to Ontario. And he was that until he retired. After that, uh, he worked for Amnesty International, which got him a CSIS uh, file. CSIS is our cute, pathetic little Canadian version of the NSA. Um, And he was also gay. He refused to use the word gay because he said it brought him no pleasure at all. And in fact, he wouldn't have even told us. But for the time, I basically, I rescued him from getting the shit kicked out of him by his abusive wife. And we ended up taking him down. This is when I was still allowed into the U.S., um, we ended up taking him down to live with my brother for a little while. Um, and he was just one massive bruise. And even then he was basically saying, 
you know, don't be hard on your mother. Look at what I am. You know, I've been a very poor husband to her, blah, blah, blah. Um, so dad struck me as this guy. Dad was this guy who was repressed, who had enormous dignity, was a very, very kind person, but I don't think he had a happy day in his life. And if you look at Siri's dad, you'll find that Siri's dad is about an equal mix of um, of my dad and uh, Edward James Olmos's portrayal of Commander Adama from the Battlestar Galactica reboot. Um, and sad to say, the mother is pretty much just all Fanchon Watts. Um, so I like, I would like to take credit for writing touching characters that you could relate to. Um, but in fact, there was very little imagination there. That was just me mining my own personal experience because I'm not very good at inventing characters out of whole cloth. I don't know in terms of what diminished capacity you're talking about. Fanchon was, she was always kind of an asshole. Um, but she did suffer from dementia in her later years. And the main difference there was that the thin, fragile facade of Christian charity, the smile that she always had plastered on her face when guests came over and when there was company and when there were people watching, she lost the ability to maintain that in public. Um, she made all sorts of accusations, basically accused dad of abusing her. Um, to everybody at church. So dad was persona non grata for a while. Um, I don't know what kind of diminished capacity you're, you're dealing with. Um, I, I sympathize with you if it's anything like what happened to her, but I felt very little sympathy for her because she was always not a very nice person. And I think what the dementia did was just bring that to the surface and give it fists. Oh, <sighs> Peter, you just you just got me twice. You you like the the initial story and reading it and now talking about it now. Thank thank you for being willing to talk about this. Everybody's dead in my family except for one creepy pedophile brother over in Edmonton. <laughs> so it's it's not like I'm gonna pay any price for this. Uh, yeah, that's that is heavy, man. And and yeah, thanks for sharing. Uh, we appreciate it. I'm you know yeah. I'm not quite sure what to say, but that's that's all very very heavy and very intense. Um, it's yeah, so, you now know, you can see why I want to talk about sea cucumbers the rest of the time. <laughs> no kidding. Or, or play, or play VR Skyrim, I think was what you mentioned yeah. you were going to do. Yes. Um, you know, I, you know, Peter, I have to, I have to say as a dark joke, I am kind of tempted to ask why you can't come back to the U S but if you don't, but I, I don't want to pry. So I, I know I was one of the people screaming in forums about it when it happened, man, I'm still pissed off. Uh Oh Yeah. <laughs> Well, we don't have to go to that if we don't. If that's, there's no need to dig that. Um, you know something? Uh, would you guys like an exclusive? I would love an exclusive. Yeah. Okay. There was a while back, um, when let me just pull this up. There was a a time a while back when uh, some people in Hollywood wanted to make a a series out of Blindsight, and they not only wanted to make a series out of Blindsight. But they, um, Squid Gate, Squid Gate, where's Squid Gate? But they wanted me to write 
the um where the hell is it they wanted me to write the uh, pilot but that would involve me having to go down to la for a while so at that point, um, I hired an immigration lawyer. There was no real reason for me to. Uh, there was no real reason for me to um, go down, other than when my brother died. I, that was kind of a pain. My the the non pedophile brother, um, and I wasn't allowed in to see him then. That was kind of a drag. But other than that, there was no real reason to go down. State. But in this case, I decided to hire a lawyer because there was a fair bit of money on the table here, and as it turned out, that particular deal fell through. So um, I never, I never sent any of this stuff off, but I did spend a few thousand dollars getting the package together. Um, let me just see if I can find it. You can cut all this. You can cut this this stuff out in um, post production, right? Yeah, uh, we great. There we go. There we go. It's a zip file. That's why we're not seeing it. Reentry. Character references. Here we go. Okay, so um, I'm uh, doing all this paperwork, and uh, oddly enough, this is like during my f my first and so far only LSD trip. I get an email from my uh, uh, my immigration lawyer saying I have to write this letter of remorse as part of the application. Are you guys there? Yeah, yeah, we're here. We're listen <laughs> just listening. Okay. Oh, we're wrapped is what's happening. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just wondering if I was hearing a dial tone or something. I, I haven't I haven't heard so much silence since I was talking about vampires on the Buffy panel. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, and I was like, I was half hallucinating. I was like, no fucking way am I going to write a letter of remorse. And they actually sent a template showing the kind of letter that I should write. And, and it was full of, of lines like, you know, back at such and such a time, I made some very silly decisions and I feel in nature of criminal enterprise here. Um, I, not a day has gone by when I have not regretted my actions to blah, 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 blah. But I have since turned my life around and I'm now a member of my church and I have gotten married and I have three lovely children. And I teach basketball down at the local Y and, and if you blah, blah, blah. So, so uh, I had to write something and I've, I've shown this to friends, but this has never actually been publicized before. So I'm going to read you the letter of remorse that I, uh, that I wrote to the Department of Homeland Security. Oh, hell yes. <laughs> to whom it may concern. And remember, this is in exactly beat for beat. This is, this is the style and the kind of thing that they want me to say. I am requesting and applying for a waiver to enable me to go to the United States of America. Back in 2009, while trying to leave the U.S. after helping an expat return to the States, I was pulled over at Port Huron, Michigan, for an exit search that violated the Border Patrol's own stated protocols. Having led a sheltered life, I failed to think about the power dynamics at work in authoritarian systems and the extent to which the U.S. has criminalized the expectation of reasonable communication between civilians and the authorities who keep them in check. I therefore approached one of the officers to ask what was going on. I had no intention of provoking hostilities. I neither raised my voice nor used incendiary language. But of course, the very ask of, act of asking questions is considered provocative in such situations. 
I was ultimately convicted under Michigan statute MCL 750.81D1 for, as the prosecuting attorney convincingly argued in her closing statement, failing to immediately get on the ground after having been punched in the face. (sighs) Fortunately, the judge in that case chose to ignore the prosecution's request for jail time and released me with a small fine, remarking that I was the kind of guy he'd, quote, like to have a beer with. I like to regard this small endorsement as evidence that my rehabilitation was already underway. <laughs> enclosed, with, enclosed with my application are reference letters from accomplished professionals in a number of disciplines, law, finance, journalism, science, engineering, literature, even from one of the jurors at my trial who stood at my side during sentencing in a show of support and whose family was subsequently subjected to ongoing police harassment for reasons which I'm certain are completely unrelated. I also include a CV detailing the degrees I've earned, the awards I've won, the books, articles, stories, and scientific papers I've written, the 20 languages into which my work has been translated, the courses in which my work is taught, and the impact my work has had in fields ranging from philosophy to computer science to video games. These documents speak to who I am now, and while unlikely to confer the sort of credibility you might attach to a border guard with 13 weeks of training under their belt, Perhaps they'll give you hope that I may yet become a productive member of society. (laughs) I have learned and grown a great deal since that unfortunate altercation at the Blue Water Bridge. I understand now that the brave members of the Border Patrol daily risk their lives to protect your citizenry from people like, well, me. Right up to and including that member of the Port Huron Detachment who, just days after my arrest, was himself arrested for possession of child pornography. Uh, Then I have a, a little... PDF showing the actual court filings in that particular case. I should have realized that it was a mistake to approach the guards on an equal footing as fellow human beings. As a former biologist, I should have known that the only appropriate response would be that practiced by subordinate members of other primate species, avoidance of eye contact, servile posture, and reflexive, unquestioning obedience to all commands, no matter how perplexing. Realizing my error, I have chosen to follow the lead of that great American Harry Whittington who, after being shot in the face by then-Vice President Dick Cheney, actually held a press conference to apologize to Cheney for the incident. (laughs) In that spirit, I would like to express my sincere remorse that I have cause to re-enter the U.S., especially at a time when so many of your own countrymen appear to be going the other way. Perhaps you've heard that Immigration Canada's website crashed on the night of your recent election. If you grant me the requested waiver, however, I can promise that I will not stay a moment longer than is absolutely fucking necessary. Sincerely, Peter Watts, PhD. <laughs> My God. Well, did it work? No, I never, I never sent it off. Okay. <laughs> Here's, the thing. Here's the thing. Once the, once the offer fell through, I still had two things left to do. Uh, one thing I had to do was to... Um, Shit, maybe just one thing to do. Yes, I had to go to a place like in the U.S. or a U.S.-type territory, get re-fingerprinted, um, and pay like 500 extra dollars or something to submit the application package. The problem I had was that they kept, they had been sending me bills all these years um, for my accommodations at the, the Port Huron jail. <laughs> they, they actually charge you like you're, like you're spending, it's one, it was one of those private jails, right? They charge you like 36 bucks a night, like you're, spe- you're staying at a fucking Motel 6. 
and uh, and I was just not paying them. Obviously, um, there was a a depot at Pearson International Airport here in Toronto where I could have gone to submit this stuff, but it shut down for reasons that I that I still don't understand. I don't know what happened, but it was no longer available, which meant that I would actually have to cross the border into the U.S. Uh, another problem was that when I was, um, because I had been banned from the U.S. after after being kicked loose by this judge, um, I also had to provide a DNA sample. But they said I could provide the DNA sample through t- the Toronto PD because I couldn't go back to the U.S. anyway. Um, and I had I had done some work at the uh, molecular biology lab at the Royal Ontario Museum, so I had some friends there. So before I went in to give my cheek swab, um, one of them mixed up this collection of DNA from about a dozen different species. <laughs> and so I sluiced it around in my mouth before I showed up for the sample. Um, and I don't know. I mean, you know, it was a small sample. There was like, you know, it would be 99% Peter Watts DNA anyway. On the other hand, you know, what polymerase chain reaction does is it takes very, very small chunks of DNA and, and amplifies them, magnifies them out of all proportion. So, you know, there's a chance that if they sequenced that sample, they thought that there's somebody wandering around in the wilds of Canada who's like part kumquat and part koala bear <laughs> and part alligator. <laughs> Anyhow, that that plus plus the fact that that I have a, you know, they have this outstanding hotel bill for the jail I was in. Um, Incredible. Made me think, you know, there's really no point in doing this now because the deal is off the table. I'm not going to L.A. and I don't want to get git mode, quite frankly. So I'm, I've, I've kept this stuff in the event that it come, comes in useful again, but uh, but I've never actually sent it off. And it's a real shame because... You know, I really was proud of that letter. And it's, a great, <laughs> it's a great letter. and I wanted someone to read it. <laughs> Peter, I just want to you- say, on behalf of the United States of America, I am sorry for, about everything. I also, I was born in Michigan. On behalf of Michigan, I apologize, too. Yeah. We, we suck so bad. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of you do. I mean, they actually brought Homeland Security up. And Homeland Security, you know, interviewed me and interviewed my passenger. And they didn't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Like this was supposed to be a federal charge because it was crossing a border. Um, but Homeland Security didn't want anything. So they got the local cops to charge me instead. Um, and there was, I mean, it's really, it's, it's for another time and many beers. There are uh, um, the weird shit that happens. Like when you get, when you get pepper sprayed and then you start to choke on this overproduction of mucus in your nose, but they tell you if you blow your nose, they won't help you, but if you blow your nose and your snot hits any of the guards, you will be charged with assault. Um, that kind of thing is, is uh, the, the, the fact that they were quite explicitly, once I had made bail and was about to leave, they were going to arrest me again on a separate charge. Um, and the only reason they didn't was because all of a sudden they were getting calls from the press. Um, Jesus, man, I mean, this just gets worse and worse. It's, wow. It's yeah. totally fucked. It's, it's, they, they, uh, the, 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 that 
juror I told you about who stood, you know, stood by my side, you wouldn't believe the shit she had to put. She basically, I gave her some money from my defense fund to meet her mortgage because she had to hire lawyers. The cops just kept literally breaking into her house, arresting her families, marching them downtown, not charging them with anything, trashing their place. Um, she was, she was married to, um, a first nations person. Right. So they were just, yeah. they were trashing various religious implements. I mean, this went on for, for a year um, because she had the temerity to say this, you know, to stand at my lead. She wasn't the only one. Other people weighed in on sort of various um, weighed in on various uh, online outlets saying, yeah, we were, you know, we were in the jury. We thought this sucked. We had to, we had to convict because the law was pretty explicit, but it was an unfair. The, the, the law itself is a statute that spends, that in, it includes everything from failing to follow a lawful command up to attacking somebody with a chainsaw. It's all exactly the same statute, and it's a felony. And it spends three paragraphs describing what a person is under the law in the context of this particular statute. It never describes what a lawful command is. So these border guards, they're not even cops. They literally go to summer camp for a few weeks to get their training. They don't have any real formal, and yet they have far, far more authority than cops. And if one of them tells you to get down on your hands and knees and bark like a dog, is that a lawful command? Never defined. Um, so, yeah, there's a – fuck, I mean, we're not talking one podcast here. We're talking, we're talking a yearly investigative report. But, yeah, no, it, it taught me a lot. Um, well, I'm sorry. I, I have to say, though, it didn't it didn't actually change my my opinion of, of um, U.S. governmental institutions at all, though. Um, it, it rather just confirmed. It. <laughs> yeah, I like I said, I am truly sorry about all that bullshit. And I have to say, I think, gosh, I feel like we could go on like this for a long time. Like you said. I, I I really like that have beers with you idea. If if you know, <laughs> next time we both head up to Canada, I'd like to send you an email to see what we can do. It's on me. Seriously, anytime you guys are in town, I would be honored. Where, where do you live? Where's in town? Toronto. Oh, Toronto. Yeah. Um. You know, it's not as impossible as it. It's not as unlikely as you may think that Pete and I go up to Canada. Like I said, we both love Canada. So. <laughs> oh, I, I sure as hell would go up there and have a beer with Peter Watts. Are you kidding me? There's a there's a place. It's kind of my my our favorite go-to place now called Stormcrow Manor. It's a, it's basically, it's basically a sports bar for science, for science fiction geeks. That sounds there's perfect a, for me. Oh my God. There's, oh my there's God. like yes. literally, literally there is a, there is a beholder head and a rancor head from Star Wars mounted over a couple of the fireplaces. They've got um, a one-to-one recreation of the weird zip, zippy room, the, the red curtained room from, from um, Twin Peaks. Um, there are alien face huggers clinging to the, the, the baby. The diaper change table is set up as a, as a Lovecraftian sacrificial altar. The, the bathrooms downstairs are, are trucked out as nuclear fallout shelters. 
The shooters for shooters, you basically have to roll a d20 to decide what shooter you get. Um, wow. You would love this place. Peter. The, the kind of podcast you do, we would go there. We, could, we would get absolutely hammered and we would, you, would, you would have the time of your life. I, you know what? At some point, man, we're going to do our best to make this happen. And I just want to say, uh, you're welcome back in this podcast anytime you want to muse about sea cucumbers, promote new work, <laughs> whatever. Seriously, we're here, man. Read government correspondence. Seriously, go nuts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For real. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was a blast. And again, sorry for, for being a pain on the security front, but it seems to have worked out. It worked out great. And honestly, this is, ex- I'm really excited to post this. Um, to our listeners, uh, this this is probably the deepest and most involved interview we've done. So I, I am certain that you all enjoyed it. And you not only have to go out and read Blindsight if you haven't. I know a lot of you already have. But read that. Read Peter's other work. And Peter, thanks so much, man. I have one more thing to say. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Because you did not ask one of the questions you were going to ask. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> one of the questions you were going to ask was, who is my favorite fictional vampire? Yes. Yes. The answer is Colin Robinson. Oh, I okay. I feel embarrassed. I don't know who that is. I, I am furiously. <laughs> I can't say <laughs> Google because of your distrust of Google. But like, uh, <laughs> we're on Bing right now. Yeah, we're on Bing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's much better. <laughs> so, Colin Robinson, do you guys oh, watch? Oh, what we do in the shadows? Oh <laughs> gosh, yeah. Okay, I should. I should know that. <laughs> He's the daywalker. He's the guy who like sucks the life force out of you by talking about his hernia or his colonoscopy or the different kinds of lint he found under his car seat for five hours at a time. Ah, the energy okay. vampire. I, I he, confess, like I definitely heard of this. I have not seen it. So you, he, you're going to push me towards, yeah. He's like Coleman Dairy Girls, except he's uh, supernatural. <laughs> you actually, there's actually an episode where you actually see him masturbating in a city council session. Because it's, <laughs> because it's so boring. <laughs> and he just sucks all that energy up, right? It's, uh, yeah. Colin Robinson, my man. That's a good call. Now that that was, that's, that's a great pick for someone who said they don't like vampires. And now we've come full circle. Yeah. And... <laughs> I, I, I know I jumped the gun there on signing off, but I, unless Peter has more, more things you want to say, I think this is probably a good place to sign to off. But. <laughs> I, just wanted to, I just wanted to give a call out to Colin Robinson. That's, that's the only reason I showed up today. <laughs> Word, man. Well, honestly, like I said, anytime, anytime whatsoever you want to come on here, even if, it's, even if it's just to give your analysis of the primaries, you know, like that's not our favorite topic, <laughs> but like, Peter, you have you have a pass, man. Most people don't have a pass, but you do. So, <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I'm, I'm not really the. I'm Canadian. I'm not gonna push my way in the door. You guys want me back? Come on, bend a knee. Ask politely. We'll come bend you the know, knee. Maybe oh, even, maybe, yes. even, maybe even come. Maybe even you know come and do it on location. We can we can set up a little studio in Stormcrow Manor and uh, and do it there. I, I think that's brilliant. I'm not at all kidding when I say that that's an idea that we're going to explore and see if we can make happen. Awesome. Okay, well, until then, thank you so much for your interest. It was a blast. Peter, thanks so much, man. That was a real pleasure. Absolutely. Talk to you later. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>